Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have with me today Christine Dorman, who is a critical care nurse practitioner in Southeast Florida. She has been in healthcare for more than 30 years, starting as a certified nursing assistant, moving to a licensed practical nurse, becoming an RN, getting her bachelor's, getting her master's, getting her doctorate. She's quite accomplished. And our topic today is on medication errors in the critical care environment. When you think about the pictures that you may have seen, or you might work in units like this, where there's bags and drips and medications hanging all over that patient's room, it seems, with multiple pumps, you can understand the complexity that faces critical care nurses in taking care of their patients. And an attorney may come to you and say, we've got a medication error in the critical care unit and ask for you to offer opinions to screen the case or to act as an expert witness. Christine's insights will help you understand a little bit more about this complex area. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you, Pat. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Let's focus a little bit on medication safety, given that what I would consider to be an overwhelming picture of complexity, what processes are in place to try to avoid medication errors in the critical care units? Well, I think in order to understand um, medication safety and the current processes that are in place, I think it's important to look back at the history as to how patient safety um, came about, what actually um, you know, pretty much uh, brought this about within our critical care environment as well as our hospital environment. And as you mentioned, medication safety and the complexity within the critical care environment, it's very paramount. Healthcare organizations are very complex. The patients, the acuity of the patients are very complex and it is not without uh, errors. Um, and being realistic from that aspect. And I believe that this was brought to the forefront um, with the history of the Institute of Medicine's uh, report in 1999 to Air is Human when they mentioned uh, the amount of patients that die annually because of medical errors. And they estimated that up to about 98,000 patients die annually because of medication error or medical errors rather. And a large portion of that is because of medical medication errors. Up to 78%, I would say in the critical care environment is attributed to medication errors. And they followed up with a companion report in 2001 called the Crossing the Quality Chasm, 
where they actually stipulated what quality improvement processes need to be put in place to safeguard patients from having errors occurring in the future. So the processes that are currently in place are multiple and they involve the layer of um, the actual medication process for these, each patient itself. Administering a single dose of medication to any patient involves the five categories, which is the how the medication is received from that provider, how it is uh, transcribed, how it is prepared, how it's dispensed um, or administered um, by the critical care nurse at the bedside. Yeah, there are a lot of steps in that process. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought about um, to air as human for a while. I remember when that report came out. Mm-hmm. I was familiar with the data that they used to draw their conclusions, which was at least a decade before the report was written. And it covered only inpatient errors and death. It didn't cover that broader range of the um, hospital, uh, outpatient units, doctor's offices, nursing homes. So those numbers are, if you look at all the scope, were considerably higher. And many people believed that that number of 44 to 98,000 equivalent to a jet plane taking off every day and killing its passengers was vastly underreported. Exactly. Of, uh, of all those factors and errors that occur that the healthcare providers may not necessarily be aware that they are making, but then result in patient injury. Exactly. And I think it's estimated now that it's, you know, what is reported now ranges within a quarter million patients dying annually because of medical errors. So I think it's paramount that we as uh, nurses, as providers, uh, stay vigilant with trying to make sure all the safeguards are in place to protect patients from, uh, you know, encountering any further harm and making sure those medications are given, administered um, in a safe fashion. Take us into that, the critical care environment where you have people who are uh, beset with a variety of medical and surgical problems, complications, that rather chaotic picture that I started the podcast with, with the drips that are hanging all over. If you're watching this on YouTube, I've got my hands waving, showing all the bags that are hanging and all the pumps. Mm -hmm. What systems and safeguards should be in place to help the critical care staff avoid medication errors in that type of a setting? Well, the systems that are in place at this time or currently in our institution or for any organization is to ensure that there is, you're actually going through the five rights of the patient or or some studies say six, making sure that you have the right patient, the right medication, the right route, uh, the right time, the right frequency. And the systems that are in place at this time are making sure that you have barcoding, that any pre-filled syringes are being utilized uh, to administer medications to that patient, that you are being mindful of any high-risk medications that are 
being utilized, such as insulin or any of our vasoactive drips that we that we have to give uh, those patients. We often have nurses that um, need to, we have two nurses are verifying medications in order to make sure that it is being administered properly. Uh, the other thing that we have the beauty of is technology with computer orderized computer order entry, where the stop gaps that are in place, um, you have an alert that may be flashed by the computer to tell you that they may be a drug to drug interaction um, with the medication so that you don't um, either under uh, give the patient too much or too little of that medication. Uh, the other stop gaps that are in place, or if you have the, the opportunity or your institution has the ability to provide an on-site critical care pharmacist that will also help with um, ensuring that the medication is uh, received in a timely fashion and that it, that is also delivered as well within a timely fashion. They have been crucial in my institution for me, having them on site to just even communicate about the medication and talk about what medications need to be given and uh, how we're going to give the medication and make, you know, to ensure that all the processes of the medication process is not, is not, uh, it's executed in a correct uh, form, I should say. I have not worked in a healthcare system that uh, that had um, on-site critical care pharmacists, and that sounds like a phenomenal resource. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've been so instrumental to us because we are very fortunate, I would say, in my organization to have them be on-site for us during rounds where we're able to discuss the care of the patient. We're able to, when we institute a treatment plan, if we're making any changes to the medications, we often will look to our pharmacists to add, you know, to, you know, have to provide us with some feedback uh, to let us know is this the correct amount of uh, medication that we're being administered. The time, uh, the duration of how the the length of the medication that needs to be administered, and you know, tighten up all the loose ends for when you have that patient optimized and they need to be transferred out of the ICU, we have to ensure that all of those gaps are, are kind of uh, tweaked before we do that. And we reconcile any medication uh, for that patient before they come into our unit or while they're in our unit and continue to have the process be looked at. It's an ongoing thing. I know with the case involving the nurse at Vanderbilt who inadvertently gave a paralytic drug, that there's been more attention paid to the, the potential consequences of improperly using that medication. I would hope that's not a common medication error that occurs in critical care. And yet, if in my mind, it's one of the most serious ones mm -hmm. that can have immediate consequences when you paralyze the patient's diaphragm. And if that patient's person's not on a, a ventilator, yes. then you've taken away their ability to breathe. Yes. Could you comment a little bit about that drug? Vecaronium. Well, there is, uh, I'll say 
this before I um, go into that. The process of um, a medication error occurring in critical care, um, it's high because a lot of those medications sound alike, they look alike. Um, you know, a lot of them, it's also manufacturer dependent. And depending on if the nurse is not familiar with the medications, they should not be administering the medication. Um, for us, it's, you know, we talk about the competency of nurses, um, including myself as a provider. Am I familiar with that medication? I need to have more education on that drug before I, I go ahead and order it. Am I ordering the right uh, dosage amount, the frequency amount? Um, you know, familiarity and education about the medication first is key uh, before you go ahead and administer the drug. Um, the medication, that coronium that Redondavoit um, encountered, um, that whole situation itself at Vanderbilt was very tragic. It was unfortunate that for what happened to that patient. And again, like you mentioned, it is a paralytic and it needs to be in a monitored environment. Um, pulling it from the Pixis uh, and what was relayed to us or communicated with us, um, typing in, I think she typed in VE from what I understand. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it was similar. She thought she was pulling Versed or the other, uh, the other generic or brand name for that, um, Adazolam. They're very close, sounding almost alike. So not sure what was happening during that uh, time or speaking to how it was loaded in the Pixis, who was responsible for that, the systematic error of that. But there just seems to be quite a number of things that were brought about from that um, event that we need to speak to as providers in order to make ensure that safeguards are in place. Uh, Vecuronium should not be administered um, without being monitored. Uh, the patient needs to be in a monitored setting. That medication is used to, you know, either intubate someone as far as an induction medication, either by an anesthesia person, personnel, or in the ICU before we go ahead and, uh, you know, place someone on a ventilator. We do often have the nurses monitor it as drips. Um, if, we, if we're having someone that's be under chemical paralysis that we need to take over breathing for them in order to get them better oxygenated, um, it is used in that setting. But again, like you said, those patients are intubated. They're not, then they're monitored in a critical care setting. They're not to be left alone in an unmonitored area. Yes, you're right. It was a tragic event and had all kinds of implications for the patient, for the nurse who lost her license, for the criminal action that was charged against her, the resolution of that. She did not have to go to prison, but she will not be able to practice nursing again. And she has that death of the patient that she has to contend with, which she candidly says she has to live with that for the rest of her life to know that her actions were responsible for this patient dying. 
Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Do you know how to control your to-do list? One thing that I've learned from my decades of running an LNC business is the truth of saying, the devil is in the details. In our businesses, we must keep track of multiple details involved in the cases that we're handling. However, there is no one-size-fits-all method to stay on top of the details. If methods you've tried for doing so only left you with a to-do list that overwhelmed you, pause here and take a deep breath. Your learning style may not match that of whoever is recommending a certain method for you. For example, you're a tactile learner who has been unsuccessful at following through on voice memos suggested by a coach. Or maybe you're an auditory learner frustrated by the physical to-do list that you keep making. Instead of letting yourself feel annoyed, figure out the technique that fits your needs. This system works for me. I jot a note on a paper when I think of something I need to do, and then I transfer that note to my to-do list spreadsheet and keep track of the items and categories. Every day or so, I review the list to make sure that I haven't overlooked anything. I'm now experimenting with Rocketbook, a system that lets me jot notes on wipeable pages, and I upload those notes to Evernote and keep them organized. From first-hand experience, I know it's easy to lose a note. If you're an auditory learner, maybe voice memos are what you need. The next time somebody suggests a great organizational tip, be sure that you determine whether or not it is in line with your learning needs. And also search the internet and organization strategies in general to look for the kinds of learners and match that to you. This business tip comes from 21 tips to running your LNC business efficiently, how to excel. Order it at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. But, you know, what I um, take away from that, I understand that, you know, no, none of us wants to see harm come to a patient or any, any patients and the, you know, sitting with that and the trauma of having to deal with that, knowing that you were responsible for that patient um, dying, that you contributed to that. I applaud her and the aspect that she you know, she came, she was accountable for her action. She did self-report and she, you know, took responsibility right away to say this was because of what I did. And I think that that in itself um, is where we're at right now. I know that I've asked my colleagues questions, you know, how do you feel about us self-reporting now? These are the challenges that we now face in healthcare. Um, do you want, do, should you self-report? Should, or, you know, how do you feel about that? Since, you know, the whole idea of criminalization of medication errors has been brought to the forefront. 
what's our duty mm -hmm. as providers now? Where do we go? Yeah. You know, that those are excellent questions, Christine, because the, the Joint Commission who evaluates and accredits hospitals in the United States, the majority of hospitals in the United States, and we have to remember we're speaking to an international audience. Mm -hmm. One of the things that the Joint Commission came out with years ago was that you must tell family members when you have made an error. You cannot hide it, conceal it, pretend it didn't happen, hope that they won't know that something happened. And that is a challenging regulation, even not in the context of what happened to this patient at Vanderbilt and the patient's nurse. Healthcare providers have struggled with that for years because of the consequences, the punishment, the disciplinary action taken against healthcare providers who make errors. And you and I are both legal nurse consultants. You are part of my LNC success connection, and you're focused on building up your business, working with attorneys. So we know the legal consequences, the actions, the lawsuits, the potential action against a nurse's license, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that facilities who have people who've made grossly negligent errors yes. should not be allowed to continue to work there if they are unsafe in their performance. And yes. yet we want nurses to self-report when they've made errors, knowing yes. that they could end up losing their jobs. Yes. So it's a huge dilemma. So then it goes back to the question that we are asking ourselves now, I think I've asked myself this, are we resorting back to a blame culture or are we still adhering to a just culture? You know, the just culture implies that, we, you know, we shouldn't be penalized for self-reporting, that self-reporting should be something that is looked at systematically where we are to learn from our mistakes in order for those mistakes not to be perpetuated in the future the blame culture before, you know, pretty much um, before the 2000 or late 1990s, prior to that, that blame culture pretty much singled out that individual nurse or, or our physician and targeted them for the error that they made, rather than looking at it from a systematic approach. I think now the question becomes, because of what's happened with Redonda Voigt, is are we still a just culture? Or are we just, are we resorting back to a blame culture? You know, and that's an interesting question, Christine, because there's two dimensions to this. Mm -hmm. There's the healthcare dimension mm -hmm. of wanting people to be able to report their errors so that the patient can receive whatever antidote might be available if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. And a chance to look at the system to see what happened in the system that contributed to the error. Exactly. But the legal system has never really moved to a just system. Mm -hmm. It has stayed in the blame system because that's what grinds the wheels of lawsuits. Who's yeah. to blame? Who needs to pay? Whose insurance policy has to be tapped for this? Uh, some plaintiff attorneys have have looked at what is the system and how can the system be changed? And is it a systemic error? Mm -hmm. 
But there are some states, including the state that I'm sitting in right now in New Jersey, where the system has to, the attorneys have to identify an individual in a hospital who committed an error in order to get above a $250,000 cap. Mm -hmm. So the whole focus in our state right now, our state being the state, is that you've got to single out a person. And there are, are other states in the United States where you have to name an individual and a facility. So I don't think that the legal system, as as committed as it might be to changing the healthcare system, can get beyond a blame function because that's what lawsuits are all about. Mm -hmm. We would like to believe that we will improve the system by filing lawsuits that will cause a healthcare system to look at the holes and fix the holes. Exactly. We, we hope that that's going to happen, but that's not ultimately the end result of a lawsuit. It's who's going to pay and, and should there be a reason for somebody to pay? Maybe yeah. this is not negligence. So I, I will get off my soapbox. <laughs> this is a fascinating topic. Let's, yes. let's rewrap back yeah. to the critical care medication errors and and help our viewers understand if they're working on cases as legal nurse consultants and the patient is in a critical care environment, what are ways that they can detect by evaluating medical records whether an error has occurred, a medication error? Well, they can review the records uh, to look at how that medication was ordered, how it was translated transcribed or given or, or delivered to the patient. Um, the other ways of detecting if an error has occurred is um, there, all organizations have a risk management department um, that are in place. And normally you can actually request to see if there's any records or any documentation or incident reports or occurrence reports. Um, they use them interchangeably in some organizations they can uh, see if there are any incident reports or records that have been filed um, regarding that patient. And it, where was there any self-reporting by uh, a nurse or a provider um, that was uh, taking care of that patient? Um, the other things that as a critical care nurse or as a provider caring for that patient is recognizing was that the correct dosage for that patient? Did they order it incorrectly? How long did that patient get the medication for? Did they receive the actual dosage that was ordered for the medication? A lot of the errors that occur in the medication process and critical care occurs during the administration process. And that's because the patient did not get the medication that was ordered because they omitted it or they underdose the patient or they overdose the patient. So if they know the actual dose route and how it should be delivered, they can easily detect if that patient did in fact get the medication truly as it was prescribed or should have been prescribed. What are some of the common medications in the critical care unit that are associated with medication errors? 
A lot of our cardiac medications, um, the high-risk medications as the Institute of Safe Medication Practice um, deems them, those are our vasoactive drips, um, such as uh, norepinephrine or phenylephrine. Uh, the other ones, uh, epinephrine, and those medications need to be, they, they're delivered through a central line. Um, if they're delivered peripherally um, in, their, in the hands or the limbs per se, they're often very caustic um, to the patient. They can cause tissue necrosis. So um, a, a nurse would look to see if how, you know, did they, how was that medication delivered centrally or peripherally, those medications. Uh, the other medications that are termed high risk are, are anticoagulants such as heparin or um, mm -hmm. um, argatroban, those medications, the blood thinners. Uh, they're also insulin is a big um, list, a big um, high risk medications and within the critical care setting. We usually have patients that come in because there might be in um, DKA or um, diabetes, ketoacidosis, and they need to be put on a drip. Um, simply because you're instituting tighter glycemic control, you can also bottom out that patient's blood sugar by giving them too much insulin. So if those medications don't follow the proper protocol, then you run the risk of making that patient now hypoglycemic instead of treating the hyperglycemia that was brought about. You know, Christine, you, you bring me back to a room that I was in when I was in nursing school in a psychiatric facility. Mm -hmm. They were still doing insulin shock therapy when I was in nursing school. In, it was in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Other facilities had stopped this because it was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, as you were talking about insulin drips, looking at this room that was, looked like a recovery room. It was a big open room. And there were all these people laying on stretchers with insulin um, that was in IV glass bottles. There were no plastic bags at that point. Mm -hmm. And the goal was to deliberately drop their blood sugar down to the point they would have a seizure. And then it was sort of magically supposed to be clearing their psychiatric illness because it would oh cause God. the seizure. It was a therapy that was stopped yes. uh, after that point. But it, I don't know, as, as you just said that, I don't know how many of those psychiatric patients got to, you know, past the danger point and down to zero and how many of them might have died as a result of that therapy. Right. And at that time, they probably didn't talk about patient safety at that time as it relates to medical errors. No, that was not part of the landscape, although I'm sure they were concerned about Mm -hmm. medication errors, but the whole patient safety quality improvement mm -hmm. movement was not active or, or visible in the 60s and mm -hmm. 70s, and maybe not until the, the 80s Yes, uh, is when people started paying attention. That was when the Harvard Medical Review study came up. Is it Harvard Medical Review? Or was it New York State? The, the one that collected the data that mm -hmm. was collected um, and collated for the report to Air is Human. I think it was New York State, but it was conducted by uh, Lucian Leap and his group of people mm -hmm. to evaluate errors. 
And I know a lot of that also kind of came out from, I think there was a three landmark cases, the one where the babies received most of the, they received heparin, the dose of the heparin. Um, and a lot of the babies died from that because of they were overdosed with heparin. And mm -hmm. I believe um, there was another case where I believe uh, the chemotherapy was ordered incorrectly for a young lady and she um, succumbed to being overdosed from chemotherapy as mm -hmm. well. Those were pretty landmark reports. And if you talk about, you know, we can go off into another tangent about um, with regards to making sure that you, your research participants are appropriate as well, you know, be, you know, and that they've actually consented to being given the medications as with the Tuskegee Airmen, Tuskegee um, mm -hmm. um, report when the gen the gentleman received or thought they were receiving the actual cure for syphilis when they did not. So yes. those are, you know, those are also sentinel events um, due to or lack thereof of medications um, that were being administered or not being administered as well. There are so many things that we could talk about this morning, Christine, and I feel like we have just touched the surface of this. Mm -hmm. Please tell our listener who's listening to this podcast on the audio channels or watching it on our YouTube channel, Legal Nurse Business, how they can contact you. What services do you provide as a legal nurse consultant? Yes, they can contact my company is uh, Vantage Point Legal Nurse Consulting, and I they can reach me through the website, uh, www.vplnc.com. That's B for Vantage, P for Point, L for Legal, N for Nurse, and C as in Consulting. Um, they can also email me um, at Christine Dorman at vplnc.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn um, for my full name, Dorman, that's D-O-R-M-A-N, one O, not two. Uh, they can reach out that way. And um, through the website, there is an 800 number that they can um, contact me as well. Well, thank you, Christine. You've brought to light some of the complexity that affects the critical care environment. We've talked about some of the quality implications and some of the reactions that followed the, the big case that we have been discussing involving Vanderbilt yes. and how that might affect nurses' willingness to report yes. the blame culture and the just culture and how these two things clash. Yes. And as a legal nurse consultant who's reviewing medical records, take the time to check dosages, check mm -hmm. patients' weight, Look yes. for antidotes that are given in situations where it is possible to provide them. That may be a clue mm -hmm. that there is a medication error that has occurred to that patient. And then, of course, always, which we don't have time to touch on, is did that medication error result in harm to the patient or was the patient so sick already Mm -hmm. that that medication had no impact on the final outcome. And that's one of the challenges that attorneys and their legal nurse consultants and intensivists 
who are consulting on cases need to grapple with. Yes, indeed. Thank you for watching this program with us today. This has been Pat Iyer and Christine Dorman with Legal Nurse Podcast. We are now heading into our seventh year, which we will hit as a landmark in September of 2022. I appreciate you participating in these programs, tuning in, listening, listening while you're walking the dog, doing your housework, exercising, or just chilling out or driving somewhere. I hear lots of comments from people who enjoy listening to Legal Nurse Podcast and are learning from what we share in this show. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Thank you, Pat. This is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. I have just been talking with Sherry Martin, who is a social media expert with SoSocialVisionary.com. Sherry and I have been talking about the use of LinkedIn for legal nurse consultants. Sherry, I know that our viewer or our listener is going to want to know what we covered in this podcast. What were some of the key points that you covered? Well, I think the key points that we really spoke on today, Pat, was the fact that you really want to position yourself as the industry expert within your legal nurse consulting industry. And to do that, you really want to make sure that you are setting up your profile to connect with those attorneys that you want to assist and do business with. You want them to hire you, right? So you want to make sure that you are definitely focusing on your Uh, The three areas that I specifically mentioned, your profile picture, make sure it's professional. And then also your headline, make sure that your headline has the specific keywords that will definitely showcase, again, your expertise and organically attract those attorneys to you. And then in your about area, be very mindful not to put your resume there. You want to make sure that you are providing information in like you're having a conversation, you're doing it in the first person and you're showcasing, again, not just your skills and expertise, but um, your your credibility, any testimonials that you have from individuals, attorneys you've worked with. Um, also, how they can connect with you to have a deeper conversation and know you more because that, again, is what we talked about once you have positioned your LinkedIn profile, you want to be connecting with those ideal clients, attorneys that can utilize your services and that you can definitely do business with. So you want to make sure that you are connecting through, you know, you want quality connections, right? So you're using the search on LinkedIn to find those attorneys that you want to work with, specifics, the type of attorney, the location. And then once you connect with those attorneys, then you want to make sure that you have conversations with them, being the one to reach out and start that conversation. And not just on LinkedIn, but also taking it offline and having a deeper conversation to deepen that relationship. And of course, the content that will keep you in front of individuals that you connect with so that you're known before you're needed and you're top of mind that there are some different types of content that you want to make sure you're putting out there again to to attract and connect with those right individuals. And that is how basically 
business on LinkedIn works. That is how you get business. That has worked for myself, for my clients. And I've worked with a few legal nurse consultants as well and spoken with um, in many different presentations with your group as well, Pat, on how to make sure you are positioning yourself and they're having greater success by following the best practices and not just putting your LinkedIn profile together, connecting and having conversations, but also continuing a best practice so that you are keeping on top of your LinkedIn profile by reviewing it uh, at least once, twice a week and responding to those individuals that you've been, uh, that are reaching out to you and also connecting with you. That is how you can grow your business and make money using LinkedIn. Well, you can tell from what Sherry just shared that we covered a lot of territory on this podcast Using a business tool that is essential for your visibility and your ability to contact attorneys who are looking for the people who can provide the kinds of services that you can. Be sure to get Sherry Martin's podcast. You may be watching us on our YouTube channel at Legal Nurse Business or listening on one of the audio channels. Sherry Martin will share tips that you need to know today about how to effectively use LinkedIn as a business connection tool. Be sure to get her show. I'm Pat Iyer, and thank you, Sherry, for sharing your knowledge. And definitely, we need to have you come back as another guest for Legal Nurse Podcast. Thank you, Pat. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.